everybody, and welcome to another beautiful Thursday morning. You're listening to Bhavani at IE Green on the Progressive Radio Network. What a week this has been. Um, everyone has heard all over the news our woman's right to choose is in danger. And um, we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. But I want to just let you know I have a great show planned for you today. My guest will be Carla Perez Gallardo. She is the chef and um, author of a wonderful new book called Please Wait to Be Tasted and the uh, chef at the Little Deb's Oasis in Hudson Valley. And um, she'll be coming on in just a little bit. But first, I want to share with you some of the things going on in and around the news, ways you can take action, and of course, share this week's recipe with all of you. So what are we going to do? Are we entering the world of Gilead? I'm really freaking out here. Um, you know, women need the right to choose. And it's been 50 years with this law being in place where we did have the right to choose. And now we're going backwards. And it's just scary that we're allowing other people to make choices for us. And believe me, I'm not saying I think abortions are great by any stretch of the imagination, but I think everyone needs to be able to make their own personal choice. If they need to deal with it that way, they need to have that choice, especially when their life is in danger, rape, incest. I mean, come on. It's just crazy. So please, I will keep you all um, abreast of any protests I hear about, any ways that you can take to the streets, letters you can write, but we all need to speak up. Um, for those of you that, you know, have watched The Handmaid's Tale, you know what can happen if we're silent. If we're silent, we really risk the our world changing drastically and going back will be really hard. So we really need to speak up and try to prevent this from happening because it is happening right in front of us and it is scary. Um, taking action, you know, I, I shared this week in my newsletter a petition for all of you to sign and um, uh, sign on to let your legislators know that we need to really improve school lunch. We're gonna be um, dealing with the farm bill, which has a lot to do with uh, the food that people get and the school lunch program. And um, right now, even though there's been a lot of improvements in the school meals and they have now expanded to also serve school breakfast, the breakfasts are really like dessert. It's unbelievable. I mean, I, I posted, you know, how much sugar is in, you know, Lucky Charms. Um, Lucky Charms has as much added sugar as a hostess cupcake. And then they talked about these ultimate breakfast rounds. I never even heard of that, but these Breakfast rounds, you know, they're advertised as hearty, great tasting, chewy breakfast item, 100% whole grain, zero trans fat with a good source of fiber. And yet it has more sugar than a Nestle's ice cream sandwich. And this is what the kids are having for breakfast. And we know sugar affects people's behavior. Um, it affects how they can learn. And for so many kids, their school meals are their meals. They go, come home to an empty refrigerator. And so we need to make these meals count. You know, if you come from an affluent family, you know, you go home and you have food to choose from. That's not the case for so many school children. And we really need to do better and we can do better. And if you compare our school meals to meals in France or meals in Japan, meals in Italy, there's no question. I mean, we are so bad. 
and we really can do better. So um, please sign this petition and see if we can hold, you know, Post and Kellogg's and General Mills to a higher standard and um, provide cereals that are not so filled with sugar. I wanted to share with you a great recipe that I um, came up with this week. It's, you know, inspired by artichoke pizza. Um, if those of you have ever gone to artichoke pizza in the city, it's a wonderful little, actually there's a couple of them now, um, but they make a really creamy, rich pizza that is, you can feel your arteries clogging as you eat it, it's so good. But this is a take on that, but it's an artichoke spinach lasagna. And of course I made it vegan and gluten-free. There's great um, gluten-free lasagna noodles out there. Um, I use a rice noodle that's really good. And so um, you can use a gluten-free noodle, but if you don't, if that's not an issue for you, you can use regular noodles. I do not boil my lasagna noodles ever anymore. Um, this recipe, I actually soaked the noodles just a little bit so they could get a little softer so I could actually lay them in the pan um, because when they come out of the box, they're so ripply and they take up so much room, you can't really lay them out. So just letting them soak for 15 minutes in some boiling water helped flatten them out. So this is what you need for the recipe. A quarter cup of olive oil, two onions diced, three jars of artichoke hearts, coarsely chopped and well-drained, one pound package of frozen chopped spinach, a half a cup of white wine, an eight ounce package of baby bella mushrooms. Feel free to double that if you want. Extra mushrooms are always good. Three tablespoons of minced garlic, salt and pepper to taste, two tablespoons of nutritional yeast, two cans of cannellini beans, two tablespoons of white miso, three cups of cashews soaked for two hours in water. And just a little tip is if you don't think ahead to really soak the cashews for long enough, if you boil, if you pour boiling water over the cashews, you can just let them soak for like 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and it will still work. A half a cup of nutmeg powder, two nine ounce boxes of gluten-free lasagna noodles, a pound of tofu drained, a cup of vegan mozzarella, that's also optional, and fresh chopped parsley. And one thing I don't see on here that I did add was um, tarragon. So add one teaspoon of tarragon to this recipe. Um, it, was, it made it really good. Okay, so you're gonna start by heating the oven to 375 degrees and boil a kettle of water so that we can soak those lasagna noodles. Meanwhile, saute the onions in the olive oil until they're translucent. Add the mushrooms and two tablespoons of minced garlic. Let that cook down a little bit, then add the wine and continue cooking for about five minutes. Add the chopped artichokes and cook for another 10 minutes or so. Add the spinach and continue cooking. Um, while that's cooking, you're gonna pour that boiling water over the lasagna noodles. And I just set the lasagna noodles in a you know, flat casserole pan so that they could soak for about 15 minutes. And while the artichokes are cooking, I pureed the beans in the food processor. I added the tofu to that, the nutritional yeast and the miso and continued processing until they were smooth. Um, you can add a little water to the beans just to make them a little creamier. Um, that's a really good idea as well. And then you're gonna add that bean mixture into the pot with the artichokes and the spinach and mix that well. Season it with salt and pepper to taste. Um, when I made this, I was actually making it for some friends that, were, that are on a salt-free diet. So I left the salt out. And so the only salty thing was the miso. 
and it still was great. So you don't need to oversalt, and people can salt on their own as well. You're going to make the bechamel sauce by um, draining the cashews, put that into the food processor, and you can use the same. You don't have to wash out the food processor once you get the beans; that will be fine. Pulse the cashews with two cups of water. Add the remaining tablespoon of minced garlic, one tablespoon of tarragon, the nutmeg, and generous seasoning of salt and pepper. Then you're gonna assemble the lasagna noodles. You're gonna start by spraying the bottom of the lasagna pan with some olive oil. Put a thin layer of the cashew bechamel sauce down on the bottom. Then put a single layer of the lasagna noodles that you're gonna take out from where they're soaking I patted them dry because I didn't want extra water in the pan. So then just lay one layer of lasagna noodles down on the bottom. You can let the ends rise up the pan if you'd like. Spread half of the artichoke mixture evenly over the noodles. Lay down another layer of lasagna noodles. Spread the remaining filling over the noodles and then put down a top layer of noodles on top. Then cover the entire casserole pan with the bechamel sauce. Um, you can sprinkle it with the vegan mozzarella on top, and you're going to bake the lasagna until the sauce starts bubbling at the edges. And that, because we've already soaked the lasagna noodles, it doesn't have to cook as long as a traditional uh, lasagna casserole does. About 30 minutes should do it. And then let it cool about 10 minutes before slicing and garnish it with some fresh chopped parsley. And I have to tell you, it was delicious. And it's dairy-free, it's gluten-free. It's healthy with all those beans and tofu, and it's just delicious. So enjoy that. And now it's my pleasure to introduce all of you to, to Carla Perez Gallardo. And I'm really excited to have her on. I've known Carla since she was three or four. Um, she was in nursery school with my son, Harper. They both went to the Waldorf school and I became very good friends with her mom. We both, um, did our Waldorf teacher education together and became Waldorf teachers. Although I went back into the kitchen because once you, when you love the kitchen, sometimes you just can't get away. Um, I also share history with Carla in that we both went to art school and we both are now um, chefs and love food and food became our creativity. And it's just so awesome. So um, Carla was raised by three Ecuadorian women in Queens, New York. And um, she was born into a home with a kitchen that was always busy. And I've had the pleasure of experiencing her grandmother's food, and it is awesome. Um, in seventh grade, her family started Sabarines, a pie company named after her grandmother. And after she graduated art school at Bard College with a degree in studio arts, she found a place for herself cooking and managing kitchens. And following a brief pause from cooking and a strained attempt to navigate the traditional art world, which I have to say, art schools hopefully are starting to do a better job, but they don't do a great job at educating you for how to make it in the art world. So I, I really hear that. Um, she decided in 2016 to become co-owner of Little Deb's Oasis. And now she's the chef and owner because her partner left. So she is the only one there but she is cooking up a storm. I shouldn't say the only one there. She has great staff working there, lots of support. Um, and her restaurant has been nominated for a James Beard Award many times. And her restaurant's in Hudson, New York. And she just came out with a new cookbook. Actually, it's not even out yet. It's scheduled to come out June 21st, but I'm privileged to have a copy. Um, but it's a great book. It's called Please Wait to Be Tasted, which is 
um, I guess, a, a phrase they use when people are waiting for their tables at the restaurant. Instead of please wait to be seated, they say, please wait to be tasted. And it is a real treat. I've been to the restaurant a couple of times. It's awesome. So if you are in the New York area or if you ever make a visit out this way, definitely get to Hudson and check out Little Deb's Oasis. And now it's my pleasure to introduce all of you to Carla. Hi, Carla. Hi, Bhavani. Hi. So, so happy to be here. Yeah. Wow. What a beautiful cookbook. It is so colorful. It is so, you so captured your restaurant in this one book. It's Thank amazing. you. Thank you so yeah. much. I'm so glad you're saying that because that was, you know, our motivation. We wanted to make something people could hold and feel like they were stepping foot inside. And I really think we did it. I really think we did you, it. You did. You did. It's absolutely gorgeous. The photos are beautiful. The playfulness and the joy and the love is like oozing out of every page. So it's just, you, you did it. So just tell me a little bit, what inspired you to, you know, go into food after art school? Because I know, you know, myself, I also graduated from art school and needed to make money right away. And you can't make money as an artist right away. It takes time. So yeah, totally. Share yeah, with us I mean, your journey. I think for me, it was progressive. Like I, I wanted, I graduated and kind of was just like, whatever, you know, in that classic 21 year old headspace where you're just like, I don't know. And I moved to Spain and I taught English and I was in love and I lived there for a year. And then my relationship was back in New York. So I moved back to New York kind of to follow that thread and needed a job. And it really was just kind of exactly that I needed a job. It was not about like, oh, I have this thing inside of me that I need to do this. It was just a job. But as soon as I started it, that's when it clicked because I think, you know, um, unlike other jobs that I had tried out in the art world where I was like a gallery girl or an artist assistant, like none of that fit me. It never felt right. It never felt like the right space or the right kind of environment for me. And as soon as I stepped foot in kitchens, it felt like that I had arrived, you know? Um, and uh -huh. of course there was early early confusion and struggle to like find my place, especially in kitchens that were male dominated. Um, but I think what was really cool was at, that I found myself feeling comfortable and confident um, and felt that others around me saw that pretty quickly um, and, and were able to say, you know what, you have something, like you have a palette. And, you know, really soon after I got my first job, I was made the sous chef and I was in charge of students that had just graduated from CIA and the Culinary Institute of, of America. Uh -huh. And that was a moment that I felt like, oh my God, like so intimidated. How do I manage these kids that have all these skills and, you know, went to culinary school. Um, but I think in food, it's like not about that, you know, it's about really like what lives inside you, like being an artist, you know, like you don't have to go to art school to be an artist. Um, okay. If you have the passion and the, the vision, it's, you, yeah, it's all that carries you. Yeah, right. The cre and the creativity is just, um, you know, it's so immediate. You know, it's, it's so immediate. It's almost like, um, you know, the Tibetan sand artists. You know, that make these beautiful mandalas and then they just disappear. You know, you can do that almost with the food. You know, you create these beautiful, beautiful dishes and palates, and then they're eaten and and they disappear. But the memory doesn't. You know, it's like you're always like seeking out for that 
um, flavor that you just experienced that put you into, you know, a state of um, samadhi, you know, it's just going yeah, for and, it, and it's so tactile. I think like that was the other thing that really satisfied me. I think like going from being in college in the artist studio and having access to materials all the time and to like these conversations that we were having of like feedback and critique, like that is what the kitchen environment is for me. You know, you're always workshopping, you're always touching something, you're always like playing with textures and colors and then workshopping, you know, you're, you're tasting things with other people and talking about why it tastes good, why it doesn't taste good, what it needs, you know, and that felt really um, fertile to me in the same way that having a studio practice had felt during college. Uh-huh. And what was your major in the art world? Were you a painter, a sculptor? I don't actually So I know. studied um, installation and performance. I, I mean, Bard oh. did like, you know, I, I graduated with a studio arts degree, but that was my focus. Um, and I think, you know, I've def- when I share that with people now, they're like, whoa, that makes a lot of sense. Um, walking into I was the just going to say that. <laughs> I was just going to say that because the restaurant is like an installation. I mean, yeah. it's just everywhere that your eye lands is something creative to to take in. It's really beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. And, so, you know, my, my business partner, Hannah, also went to art school. So I think that both of us coming in with that eye was like an, a really exciting time for both of us to create that world together. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And the restaurant's grown, right? When I first was there, it was really, really tiny. Um, did you take yeah. over the space next door or how did it get bigger? No, we um, closed for a few months in 2018 to do a little renovation. And we were able to, there was like a bathroom in the back of the um, building that had been unoccupied and just as kind of like a storage area. Um, and we were able to renovate and push back into that to expand our kitchen, you know, add a walk-in. Because when we first opened, we, we took over a diner that had been operating for 26 years. And it was like, you know, she had run her kitchen the way she had run it. Her name was Debbie Fierro. But we walked into like two home refrigerators, a, a little tiny flat top and no other kitchen equipment. So our first year and a half was like, you know, flying by the seat of our pants, figuring it out, not having an actual right, refrigerator right. that was big enough to keep anything in. Our first fridge that was commercial, a farm gave it to us on loan, you know, and uh-huh. dropped it off of the back of the, the farm truck. And we uh-huh. used that for a year and then gave it back until we could buy our own. (laughs) Well, I have to say one of the best parties I've ever gone to was your fundraiser. Um, You had a fundraiser, when was that for for that renovation? Was that in 2018? I feel like it was more recent than that. Maybe you've had two. No, no, I know that was, I I believe that was the one, well, you know, we did have two, but I think that was a fundraiser because we we needed to fundraise twice during our our history. I mean, we opened. I with, went to the wedding one. Okay, that was I the think, second one, I think. Right. I think that was the second one. Yeah. Right. You. It was just unbelievable. Really. I'm great, so glad. Great Thank you. Party. It was so fun. Uh huh. It was just really great. We um, love throwing a party. Well, I hope you do it again because I want to go. <laughs> we will. <laughs> And now we'll be fundraising for other purposes. You know, I think that's been really cool about our growth and like tying things back to the top of your show today. It's such a crazy time in this world, you know, such a crazy time. And I feel like, you know, for us, it's become central to our business model to figure out ways to give back to our community and give back to different 
people and different organizations that are doing the work on the ground level to keep us all kind of like fed and nourished and alive, you know? So definitely our donations, we, we have a donation model. Um, I don't know if it's too soon in the show to jump into this, but we have a donation model where we donate 69 cents from each menu item to charity and mutual aid. Um, uh -huh. And we'll definitely be donating from that um, to abortion rights at some point in the next couple months. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, I was going to talk about that because you have, um, you really have integrated so beautifully the social justice piece in with your restaurant. I mean, not only is it um, LBGQT friendly, more than friendly, it's just um, such a welcoming place and you can feel the community. And I think that, you know, that adds so much to your success is the fact that it is a community hub. And, you know, people really know they can go there and find a, a comfortable place, you know? Yeah, that was our, like, maybe, like, number one goal when we opened was, like, you know, we wanted to serve good food and fresh food and food that was a little bit more, had more personality, let us say, than a lot of the food being served in the area at the time. Right. Um, but we also really wanted to be a place where everyone felt welcome and everyone felt like they could come in and be part of the family and not in like that cheesy way, but like a genuine, a genuine generosity of the self to another person where when where you when you offer warmth, it's like really, really real and people can feel that. Yeah, I know one of my favorite times is, you know, during the Occupy Wall Street situation, you know, I had a direct phone number to the Occupy Kitchen. And I just, you know, every time I had an event, any leftovers, I would always channel food there and I'd drive in, drop it off to Occupy Kitchen. And it was, it was awesome. Amazing. Was awesome. Yeah, amazing. So what would you say are your main influences in the type of foods that you cook? My family, definitely. I mean, I think when I look back on my own personal cooking style and now, the ways that like my brain works. I think about being raised macrobiotic for sure. Um, and I talk about like, you know, this like kind of trifecta of flavors that I grew up with, like my grandma's more traditional Ecuadorian food that she made. Um, and she, you know, I grew up eating these like delicious stews and soups and, and comfort foods, you know, that were just so, so nourishing. And then my mom, who was really into macrobiotics, raised me eating like super clean, um, vegetable focused, vegan Japanese food. Um, right. And my aunt Lucia, who also raised me, was also really into macrobiotics and loved to cook. And so, you know, we grew up making mochi and like, I feel like she even made tempeh from scratch sometimes. And you know, there's that that through line. And then my grandma also cooked professionally for Jewish families. So you know, she was cooking high holiday food. She was cooking gefilte fish and matzo ball soup and all uh -huh. sorts of things that I think really influenced my palate too and are also comfort foods and are also like food of a diaspora. Um, and so I think all of those influences have have really come together in a way. And then I think my when I met my business partner, you know, we met cooking Vietnamese food. Um, which adds a whole another layer of like pungent flavors and herbs and freshness um, to kind of uh, those other like, you know, more comfort flavors or like the cleaner, softer flavors of Japanese food. Um, and so I feel like the food that I make now is kind of like a harmony of all of those things. Yeah, yeah. And I know you use 
acids a lot, you know, when I was looking through the recipes, you know, for that pop. So Can much, you talk a little yeah. bit about that? Because I think that's one thing that is lacking in a lot of American food is something that makes it pop. Totally. Yeah, I mean, I think for us, like acid and salt are like the two secret ingredients and salt is not a secret, but I do think in, I mean, I don't want to say American food, but I think salt is underutilized. I think there's a like a cautiousness around salt and salt is God, baby, you know, like it like brings the flavor out of anything and um, it's so special and caution, you know, but like, don't, don't be too cautious, I think is our motto, like more is more for us and acid just also is like this through line you know it's like if you're painting and like you need a splash of color that's not on the palette yet it's like that's what acid provides you know as like this like contrast to everything else happening um and it's it's a huge component in latin american food it's a huge component in vietnamese food um and i think that that's what our cuisine is about is about connecting dots um and bridging kind of like different cultural ingredients and saying like oh this ingredient is used here where else is it used you know and like mm -hmm getting really excited about making those connections. Mm -hmm. But I just, I mean, I, I can't live a day without squeezing a lime on something, you know? It's, <laughs> right. it's so right. important. So funny, I made a recipe last night, uh, a tagine, which I'll actually be sharing ne in next week's, um, next week's show. But, you know, it was delicious. And then, you know, I said, you know what? I'm just gonna squeeze some lime on it. And it just took it to another <laughs> level. You know, it was just, exactly what it needed you know just totally. a little squeeze of lime and it's just so good now a lot of your recipes i noticed you use fish sauce and as a vegan <clears throat> i can't use fish sauce what do you recommend to substitute for fish sauce i mean i that way back when i would use pineapple juice what do you use oh yeah i think like we've experimented with making i mean for me fish sauce is like this like really umami kind of salty background flavor or not even background flavor, it can be very flavor forward. But I think for me, when I've tried to replicate um, that in vegan dishes using a combination of um, soy sauce and miso, which both have really umami flavor backgrounds too, and then adding something a little sweet in there like pineapple makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I, I think koji is another flavor that comes really close to that. Um, because it's so funky and fermenty, and you know, ultimately, fish sauce is fermented fish. What is you know, it's, tell what is koji? I think many of my listeners would not know what that is. Sure. So koji are um, basically rice spores, um, rice mold that you can activate, and you it's used in a lot of Japanese cooking um, to make things like tempeh or to ferment something or to age something. A lot of like you know, chefs nowadays are putting koji on beef and aging it that way um, to give it kind of this like deeper flavor um, and bring out more of like the grassiness or, and so we've started experimenting with that too and using it as a base in our sauces um, to, to give this like really, really nice background that is deeply, deeply funky and maybe like, you know, I think someone just tasting it right off the spoon might be like, oh, I don't know. But it's like the same way that when kombucha was introduced to the market a few years ago, people were like, I'm not drinking that, like vinegar garbage. And now uh -huh. like it's in every grocery store, you know, like our palates change, our palates adapt. And I have faith that the American palate will also adapt to things uh -huh. that are so, so good where do you buy you. Koji? Uh, Asian market? Yeah, you can and get does it come in, in an does Asian it market or buy it online. It comes in little spores. It kind of looks like 
Oh God. I won't say what I think. I think it looks, maybe it looks like crushed popcorn or something like that. Okay. okay. <laughs> we'll say that. Yeah. And it uh-huh. comes in little packets and you can also order it, order it online. Huh. Interesting. I have, I have, as you can tell, have never used Koji in my cooking. Um, oh, I highly recommend you do. I think you'll really like it. I'm going to definitely give it a try. Um, so I know your food's also been described as tropical comfort food. Can you talk, yeah. elaborate a little bit on that? Sure. So we arrived at the language of tropical comfort food after our like first six months probably of opening and struggling to describe what kind of food we were making um, because it was pulling from so many different places and it was hard to talk about, you know, it was really hard to locate geographically and we didn't want to like not talk about where our food and flavors came from and erase that. Um, but it also was not easy, you know, to locate. And at first we were talking about it like pan American food or pan Latin food, because my business partner was from Alabama. I was from, you know, my family's from like South America. So we were trying to bridge these like American landscapes, but none of that kind of rolled off the tongue or really encapsulated what we were doing. And my business partner had cooked at Heartwood in Tulum and at Mission Chinese in New York City. And I, we had met cooking Vietnamese food and I had cooked Spanish food. So when we really started talking about like, what are we doing? Like, what are these flavors? You know, we're making ceviche, we're making moqueca, we're making, you know, food from all of these warm places. places. And we eventually we were like, okay, we're making food from, we're making food that makes you sweat from places that make you sweat. Um, and also I think like, as we talked about the kind of hospitality that we wanted to offer, I was thinking about all my traveling in Ecuador and visiting family and like the way that someone's just like, come in. And the first thing they do is feed you. And you're like, oh no, no, I'm okay. And it's like, no, you're eating, you know? And like, this like (laughs) absolute abundance of generosity of like, you know, we don't care. Like you're eating the soup that I made for you like I spent hours cooking this and like the tea and the juice and like the market and wherever you go it's like you're so embraced and I think that that was really the biggest influence was wanting to offer that same kind of generosity that you feel in the tropics and like you know the introduction to the cookbook touches on that the tropics are a vast vast landscape and that is global you know it's not located to any one area in in the world and it's a really hard thing to talk about, I think, to try to encapsulate the tropics in a book or something or mm-hmm. in a cuisine. But I think we do a lot of like hopping around and with so much honor and respect for all of those cultures and no desire to elevate, no desire to refine, just a true curiosity and like um, desire to connect through our own attempt to play with those flavors and learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, thing that inspires me so much looking at the book well one there's so many ingredients that are new even for me who's been cooking for so many years um you know and I'm really excited to do that but also so many of the flavors and the sauces and the um you know the spice mixtures that you can that you have in your book you can actually adapt to put on whatever vegan protein you wanted to use as well um, Absolutely. And it's very adaptable. And, you know, that's one of the things that excites me so much because, you know, I'm going to go through this book and I'm going to make each of these recipes in some fashion vegan, veganized, 
I can't and, wait you know, to see what you do with that. Yeah. And that's one of, you know, that's one of my favorite things to do. So I'm really um, excited for that. Um, so what have been some of your biggest challenges in getting the restaurant off the ground? And of course you made it through COVID, which is a, a milestone in itself, you know, a, an experiment for everybody because we've never had this before. Um, right. So what were your biggest challenges and how did you manage to get through COVID? So I think our biggest, I think the answer is kind of similar. Like our biggest challenges were always financial, you know, like we um, started the business with very little money, like much less than most restaurants start with. Um, we had been catering for about a year and a half before we opened and had about $15,000. And then, you know, I borrowed some money from my family and Hannah borrowed money from hers and we opened with under $30,000. And that's Amazing. I think what lent the project such authenticity, I think too, because like we, we painted the walls, we did all the decor, we reupholstered the chairs and like, you can feel that touch in the space, you know? Um, but, you know, I think opening without a nest egg, without really having a cushion is very risky. I don't know that I would recommend it. I would recommend that people open with just enough and not go excessive, but um, to not have a nest egg was definitely challenging. And that's what um, led to us needing to do fundraisers a couple of times because, you know, there were hard times in the, in the early years before we got super busy where we, where we were like, oh my God, how are we going to, you know, pay our staff next month or whatever. Um, and we never took that lightly. So we really rallied and our staff rallied and we were always able to pay them. But um, yeah, th those were like the scariest times where like looking into the void and being like, how do, how are we going to keep doing what we love to do um, next month in the next three yeah. months? Another um, thing that I loved about um, while reading about your business is your model of everyone's value is respected equally. And, you know, I remember back when I did catering, my dishwashers got paid the same thing as my bartenders. And I know my bartenders had a really hard time with that. And I was like, uh-uh, you know, if anything, actually my dishwashers work harder than the bartenders. Oh my God, know? absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, that's um, such an important thing to do, I think, in our industry. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it just, it really leveled the playing field. Everybody was always equal. I was mopping the floors at the end of the night. You know, I wasn't too good for that. And um, yeah. that, you know, that feeling of equality, I think, um, permeated, you know, my catering jobs when I was doing that. And you have a similar model. Can you talk about that a bit? Sure. Yeah. Um, we definitely like that was one of the other central tenets I think of opening was wanting to value everyone's labor. I think the restaurant industry until recently has really operated in this kind of like two class system. Like there's the front of house who make tips, who interface with the clients, who have this like, you know, glamour aspect to their job. And then there's the kitchen who works sometimes double the amount of hours for half the pay. Um, and never have access to tips and you know and then you're talking about dishwashers like even worse you know like they carry so much of the labor of a restaurant um, mm -hmm. and are unseen and undervalued and I think having been in work environments where that felt really um, just very central to the systems that I, I grew up you know in 
when we opened our own place, it was like, we have to invert that. We have to change that. And so um, we started out just having really open conversations with our staff and being like, how do we change this dynamic? Um, and our staff all agreed that we wanted to all be paid equally. Um, and that's what we've done from the, from the very beginning. And it's really served us. You know, I think it's yeah. lent to a work environment that feels fair, where people see that we, you know, put our money where our mouth is and they see that we treat people with respect no matter what position that they're in. And there's a lot of inclusion. And I think that makes people feel safe and like they want to stay and keep working with us, you know? Right, so right. It's, it's really yeah. been beautiful. It creates loyalty, yeah. Um, and do you... I'm pretty sure you do. You source locally, right? You have relationships with local farmers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've been working with the same six farms for six years now, you know, and like we're, there's new farms all the time and we're always like looking at products that is new to the area and excited to see more and more people farming organically and biodynamically in our Hudson Valley. Um, but, you know, we do cook tropical comfort foods, so we're also ordering limes and plantains and things that just don't grow around here. But who knows? With global warming, I mean, New York is considered subtropical now, so <laughs> who knows Not what we growing in the Hudson Valley. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, who knows? That's right. Um, so with the foods that you get, do you, have, I'm sure you've seen the prices of food going up this year I mean I'm you know I was shopping this week for a, a job this weekend and I just couldn't believe you know I guess when I do it for my family I'm not paying as much attention because I know what I have to get I get and I just I'm not paying as much attention but when you're buying food for a hundred and all of a sudden you know prices have doubled it's like oh my god how are you dealing with the price increases do you see that it's really insane. I mean, talk about limes and acid. I mean, like the yeah. lime situation is out of this world. Like I, one of our bar ran out of limes last week and I, I went to the store and I was like picking them up. And at first it was like, oh, this is great. Okay. 69 cents a pound, like perfect. And then I looked again, it was 69 cents a lime. Right. And I was just like, oh my God, I mean, to be paying over a dollar for two limes and I can make like what? four cocktails with that you know like it's just wild it's really wild and the price of oil you know like we do a lot of frying it's just skyrocketed it's hard it's hard I mean you know we have raised our prices a little bit but we also don't want to you know make our food food that people can't come enjoy and like it's a, it's a scary moment I think to be <laughs> a person <laughs> um, trying to survive and trying to eat and trying to feed a family. Um, yeah. and it's also really scary to own a business and like own a food business where you're, I mean, we really don't know what's going to happen if it's going to stabilize or if it's just going to keep going up and what's going to happen in our near future. is really, really hard to say. Mm -hmm. I would think at least with relationships with farmers, um, in a restaurant business, you can make use of some of the imperfect vegetables, right? That they can't sell at the farmer's market because they don't look as beautiful. Do you find that you um, can have special arrangements like that with some of the farmers you work with? I mean, absolutely. We do a lot of like fermentation projects and things like that. And whether it's an imperfect vegetable or not, I mean, we take like the tops off of radish and ferment them or like a lot of things that might be considered waste product or something that you just compost. Um, we're really trying to find ways to use them and 
we end up using them in sauces or as a brine for a cocktail. Um, and that's a really fun aspect of what we do is like trying to look at everything that comes to the door and, and ask ourselves, how can we use it? Like, even if we peel ginger, like what can we use the ginger skin for? You know, or like we've created something we called compost vodka. Um, and I think there's actually a recipe for that in the cookbook where, you know, it's really, it's nothing new. We didn't invent the wheel, but like you're just infusing alcohol with the scraps of what you cook with, you know, and you can use fennel scraps or carrot tops or, you know, citrus rinds, anything like that. And you can really create more flavor and get extract more energy from them before letting them go to their final resting place. Awesome. That's really awesome. I've never um, thought about doing that for with alcohol. Um, of yeah, course, limes cool. or lemon, sure, but not carrot tops or fennel. Um, yeah, yeah, you should definitely try it. I mean, like anytime you make, you know, a stock or a soup or a salad and trim off those little outer bits that don't look as pretty or whatever, give them a rinse and then stuff them in a bottle of vodka and taste it, you know, taste it the next day, taste it two days later, the flavor will increase as time goes by. Um, if you're using something like citrus, you know, you probably don't want to leave it in there for too long or the bitterness will um, come out. But it's really fun and it's, it's a fun experiment to see what you can put mm -hmm. in there. Well, in your book, you really do have a whole chapter on some awesome um, libations, uh, you know, all kinds of creative drinks, um, you know, umeboshi drinks, sunray smoothies. I mean, I'm just, you know, the names, Dirty Fingers. I just love it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Why don't you share one of your favorite crazy cocktails? with us sure let's see um i mean let's talk about dirty fingers i feel like that actually harkens back to both waldorf and um macrobiotics <laughs> and like living in the hudson valley and like you know being surrounded by farms um dirty fingers we actually developed um as a cocktail for a covid project because during covid we pivoted and opened in the back of a local hotel in hudson the rivertown lodge and we were grilling food out there um, and we changed our concept because it was like, let's just pretend, you know, like we had this like opportunity to kind of reinvent ourselves for this outdoor project. And so we were doing something that we, we called it Fuego 69 and we said it was funky, fresh, hippie, pescatarian fare. So everything was kind of like focused on being a little bit more healthful. Um, we didn't have any meat available, just um, fish, sustainable fish and seafood. Um, and we really focus again on like, you know, local ingredients, um, a lot more kind of like health food, granola-y energy um, than, than the tropical vibe of the restaurant. And it was really fun. And so for that, um, we were sourcing, you know, whatever was in season and also figuring out ways to, to reuse waste. So for that, we were doing um, basically a drink called Dirty Fingers, which reminds me of a photo that you might remember when I landed on the cover of like the little Waldorf Garden print magazine in like 1998, there's a photo of me on the cover having pulled a carrot out of the ground from the garden at school. And it uh -huh. was one of those carrots that is, you know, they grow together and they're intertwined. Right. And I was just so excited holding it up. And, you know, you can see that early joy in my face of like being like in the ground and touching soil and, right. um, I still feel that, you know, when I'm out in my own garden, but so we made this cocktail that's basically, it's really simple. It's just carrot juice, ginger juice, um, mezcal and Campari. 
Um, and, and lime. I couldn't, and lime juice. Yeah, I always need a little lime juice. <laughs> or a lemon. I guess you lemon. Lemon, lemon or yeah. lime, right? Yeah. Um, and so those, you know, it's basically literally a, a juice you might get at the health food store, but put a little alcohol in it. Um, and so it, it feels really healthy. It feels, you know, like you're kind of like doing a juice cleanse while you're also getting a little tipsy and it's really fun. Um, if you have a juicer at home, that's going to be the easiest way to make it. Um, if not, I would say, you know, grab a carrot orange juice from the grocery store and do it that way. Uh-huh. Well, some of the, the photos, who did the photos in your cookbook? They're just gorgeous. Thank you. Yeah. Um, we had an amazing photographer work with us, Jessica Petway. Um, definitely check out her work if you haven't yet. She's on Instagram as Jess Petway. She's really up and coming, amazing talent. Um, and we had so much fun working with her. And our goal was to produce, you know, photographs that felt really like, you know, like art you know, that, that had not just a classic kind of like, it's a dish on a background cookbook energy, but things that felt more conceptual or immersive or like, like they had a story. Uh Um, And so it was really fun working together with her and our friend, Anne, um, who's a producer um, and all just getting in a room and really like talking about how we can make these images come to life. Yeah. It's so colorful. I mean, it's, unlike any other cookbook it's just awesome but I have to tell you I cannot wait to make this corn this uh um corn with the charred coconut crema oh my yeah. god oh thank my god thank you yeah that was one of our early recipes from when we still cooked on the food truck together um because we cooked on a, the Vietnamese food truck and um I was you know I don't even remember where that idea came from but like we wanted to do something that was like a Mexican elote but make it vegan um and I think this one's not because it has fish sauce but you can omit the fish sauce and add a little miso to make it vegan but Uh um it is so flavorful I mean I loved charring things it's like one of my favorite things is to like add a little bit of a burnt flavor um to recipes and so doing that with the sweetness of the coconut and then the spicy and the peanut I mean it's a really fun dish great for a barbecue you know, for those of you, you're not looking at the beautiful picture I'm looking at, but, you know, basically you're charring the, the corn and then you're making this coconut cream sauce that you dip the corn in and then you dip it into this peanut sesame crumble that has sesame seed, black seed, sesame seeds, white sesame seeds, unsweetened coconut and roasted salted peanuts and a little bit of sugar and a little bit of salt. And then you make that crumble and you after you dip the corn into the wetness, you dip it into that, um, into that seed, all, all those seeds and they just stick and it's just, oh my God, the picture is gorgeous. I cannot wait to make that. You'll have to send me a picture when you make it, Bonnie. I will, with pleasure. So um, what is some of your favorite recipes in this book? I mean, there's so many, I, I wouldn't even know where to start. It's just Oh, and I love the picture of you and your grandma. I love your grandma. Oh, thank you. I know it was so fun. She came up for a whole day and did a photo shoot with us. And I'm just so happy to have those photos. I mean, she's been a huge part of, you know, the influence for me also in terms of her food and and hospitality. But I think it's been really special for her to see the restaurant grow and to bring her on and be able to have her be a part of the book was really, really important to me. Right. The other thing that's so much fun is you talk about eating with your hands. 
And I think, yeah. you know, food is such a sensual thing. And absolutely, you know, and sometimes people make it so prim and proper, you know, with the knife and fork and, you know, not touching the food and their hands get dirty and they wipe it instantly with a napkin. And, you know, but you, you just show pictures of digging in and it's just, you know, it's so much more festive, right? It's and, so much know. more festive and, and it's how it should be. I mean, like, get your fingers dirty, you know, dirty fingers, like get them in there. <laughs> lick them off later like who cares you know like it's so it's so tactile and like when you make it you're touching it like why are you not supposed to touch it after you know like it's crazy right so share with us one of your favorites sure I think one of my favorites that I'm really proud of and I think combines really unusual flavors is the tuna tataki um with shiso and concord grape nok cham um basically tataki is um a Japanese style of processing um fish and it means to pound um and basically you can like pound fish and then grill it on all sides and have it still be raw in the center um and so we did that with really fresh local tuna um we we have a great um tuna source he works with a few tuna fishermen and then like hand delivers the tunas um, around the city and around the Hudson Valley. Um, but so yeah, you take the tuna, you sear it and then slice it really thin. And then wok cham is like a really, um, delicious, uh, mix of fish sauce, shallots, lime juice. And we did Concord grapes, which are in season, um, in New York during the summer as well. And basically you pound the grapes, um, release their juices and then mix it with the fish sauce and the lime juice and the shallots and then you take the shiso leaf and place your sliced fish on there and dress it with the sauce and add a a little bit of crispy um shallot on top and then you eat it and it's just so divine so fresh you get these like bright sweetness from the grapes and then the fish sauce is like this deeper background that gives it a lot of a lot of depth and then like the succulent fresh tuna it's just so good such a perfect summer dish for me cool well i'll let you know how that is on tofu when i do it (laughs) (laughs) okay it sounds good um so another thing that i when i was on your website i saw that you have a you host a queer night of performance every month can you tell me about that my listeners yeah um queer night of performance was born (laughs) um out of conversations we were having with our community about you know, what felt lacking in Hudson. And Hudson's like super vibrant and definitely has a a big gay community, but it felt like for younger generations of queer people, there wasn't really spaces that were offering, you know, um, places to express yourself. There's really like, even though Hudson is, uh, has a very high gay population, there's there's not really like a gay bar, you know, or like a place where people can get together and have a party or throw throw a drag show and so out of these conversations we were like well let's do it you know and we started doing it um they they were organized and led by Ale Campos who was um one of our servers for many years and still comes back to you know work with us and do event do events together um and they really really led the charge um and basically we just organized drag shows it's an open call people come they perform they get tipped and it is so joyful I mean I'm so happy that this became something that we do and that we're continuing to do today 
um, our, our friend Wheeler, who also was our general manager um, before leaving the project is now in charge of those events. And they're just such beautiful nights. You know, it's like, you can just feel the joy in the room and see everyone just like open-eyed celebrating and watching the show. And people put so together such amazing stuff. The, is it a certain day of the month? It's it not, changes? I wish I could tell you it was, yeah. Um, it uh -huh. changes every month. If you um, follow us on Instagram, we always post our queer night of performance dates, usually a week in advance, um, sometimes a little bit more. Um, and this next one is gonna be during Hudson Pride. We're skipping May, but Hudson Pride is June 3rd. Um, so June 3rd, we're gonna have a huge party with um, multiple drag performances um, and three DJs in Hudson. And then on, Hudson, on June 4th is the Hudson Pride Parade. So both of those times are great times to be in Hudson and come, come hang out with us and party. Um what was I going to ask you? Um, oh, do you go beyond your walls? I mean, I would think, you know, oh, your, yeah, your yeah. space is still small. So if you're doing a, you know, a big um, performance, do you go, can you go outside so that more people can be part of it? Or do you really we confine did, yourself to the walls? We did one show in our backyard last summer, but, you know, we have neighbors. <laughs> it's hard. I don't think they were super appreciative of having like, a hundred people in our tiny courtyard shrieking at the top of our lungs so um but we have done I mean we've done shows at Jacob Reese um beach in the Rockaways and like we've done shows in the city um and we've done shows in like the park in Hudson so there's moments where we don't do it at the restaurant but I think our our ideal is to do it in the restaurant because there's nothing like you know dinner and a show and like coming and sitting and having this great dinner and then suddenly out rolls like seven drag queens that are making you scream and dance and you know how it's many, just really how many fun. seats does your restaurant hold now um i'd say in the in the slower months when we're when we are confined to the indoors we can see around 60 um if we're getting really cozy um and then we can seat more because we've been allowed to do outdoor seating on our sidewalk and even take over one of the parking spaces and then we are able to use our back courtyard um, for, which probably would seat another 30 or so. So we almost double in size when it comes to the summer, which is really nice. great. Nice. Yeah. Um, and so what, the last thing I want to talk about in this book that I just really loved is your wine poem and the yes. inspiration that that can give. You know, it's like, you know, when you, when you, drink wine and you listen to someone there's talk about, you know, describing their wine, you know, there's usually very traditional terms, you know, you know, um, aged in oak and fruity and currants and all that stuff. But your wine poem goes way beyond that, like slap and tickle, um, friendly doctor, ring stain. Talk, talk about <laughs> your wine poem inspiration and um what you ask you know the suggestion you ask people to do to like start that process sure I mean I think for us wine poems were born from a feeling that you know so much as in art school like so language can feel really inaccessible um for a lot of people and it's like something that you need access and education for and like it can feel like a closed loop so 
it was really important to us to feel like we could um, open up the language of wine a little bit. And I think when we first opened, we also didn't know that much about wine. So even for us, it was like, how do we, how do we find ways to talk about it that um, reflect our experience of the world and our, and the language that we're familiar with? Like, sure, like someone might know what a current tastes like, but it also kind of doesn't add to my understanding of the wine, you know, like, I think a lot of the wines of the traditional, sorry, a lot of the words that the traditional wine world uses to talk about wine are kind of just other food words. And for us, it felt so much more exciting and actually accurate and evocative to talk about wine, about the associations that you have. Like, wow, this wine makes me think about driving, you know, on a dirt road in the middle of summer with the windows down and you can smell the dirt kind of dust coming off the road and into your nose and like all these things and the sunlight's coming through the through the window and whatever like that is so much more of 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 a picture that I feel like someone can step inside of and so what we do is we drink wine together we the only rule of making a wine poem is that you can't do it alone so it can be you and one other person or it can be you in a room full of people and you all you know open the bottle of wine pour yourself a glass and then you have this conversation where you're like, what comes to mind, you know? And like, it's so fun. I mean, people are like, moon, like share and moonlight, you know, like, and the way that you can kind of riff, you know, once someone says something, it's about saying yes. And, you know, it's not about saying no, even if you disagree, but it's about saying yes. And okay. Why does it make you feel that way? Or like, why are you tasting that? You know? And I think inviting that kind of curiosity and then saying yes and to someone, it's also a really exciting way of including people's voices, you know, like no one's wrong if that's what they're tasting, you know, mm -hmm. like taste is subjective, <clears throat> right. you know? Right. And do um, you source, are all your wines organic or biodynamic? All of our wines are natural. So, you know, biodynamic okay. and organic are, you know, cert certifications and a lot of our wines are certified. But um, the, what it means to be natural is that most of them are not using um, chemicals in their farming practices. They're not adding um, additives at the end of the winemaking process, which is happening horrendously in the conventional wine world. So yeah, a lot of our wines have no sulfur um, and they're really, really good. I mean, these are wines that you can drink and not get a headache the next day. And yeah, they're just, awesome. they're made with a lot of care. You know, they're very artisan. Um, passionate winemakers you know mm -hmm. a lot of love yeah, awesome so we are just about out of time just quickly um i want all my listeners to know how to find you on instagram can you please share all your information and then of course when i review this i will share that out there as well absolutely yes you can find us on instagram at lildebsoasis.com that's l-i-l-d-e-b-s-o-a-s-i-s and um, online at www.lildebsoasis.com. Um, find us there, follow us, come eat at the restaurant. We're in Hudson, New York, 747 Columbia Street. We'll, we'll be waiting for you. Thank you, Carla, thanks so much. Thank you, Let Bavani. me know when you have that next party, that fundraiser, I wanna be there. Absolutely, and we'll be doing book releases all over New York City um, starting in June, so stay tuned. Great, great. I will share that info out to my um, following as well. Okay, Thank so you, great Carla, to talk to you. Me. Such an honor. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. And everyone out there who's been joining us, you've been listening to Carla. 
Perez Gallardo, the chef and owner of Little Deb's Oasis. And of course, I'm Bavonic at ieGreen.com. Speak to you all again next week. Have a great rest of the week. Bye for now. <laughs>